morning, everybody, and welcome out here to the Medina East Campus as we are continuing in a series that we've been in for a while that we've been calling Questioning Jesus. And you can see we're having a little bit of technical difficulties on the TV, but I think we got that pretty much clear now. Thank you, Tommy. Appreciate that. It's Tommy, everybody. So wonderful. Hey, round of applause for him, I guess so. Excellent. But, uh, but yeah, we are, we are actually continuing in a series we've been calling Questioning Jesus, the fifth week in the series. And I just want to sort of reiterate something that Seth had mentioned, and that is that if you are a guest with us here today, if it's your first time here, we do just want to extend just a really special welcome to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we counted a privilege that you would carve out some time and that you would be with us here. Uh, we know that your time is valuable. But let me kind of catch up to speed. If you are a guest or maybe you, you missed the past several weeks, uh, what we've been talking about in this series is we said that we are together sort of looking at some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked. So that's what we're sort of looking at in this series, is we're looking at some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked. And throughout the last few weeks, you might remember if you were here, we said that when you go through the Gospels, you find something really, really fascinating. And what you find is that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, asked a mind-blowing amount of questions. And so just kind of as a recap, we said that throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, kind of the biographies of the life of Jesus, Jesus asked a staggering 307 questions. Uh, we said that, man, Jesus kind of, you know, when you look at his interactions, uh, you, you come to realize very quickly that Jesus just asked a, a huge amount of questions in his interactions with people. And then we said what's interesting is com in comparison to that, that Jesus was only asked 183 questions. So we said what's real fascinating is that in most of Jesus' interactions, what you find is that he was the one that was doing the questioning. Uh, Jesus was the one most often who questioned people more than people would question him. And then we said what's, what's also real interesting is that Jesus rarely gave direct answers to those who questioned him. So of the 183 questions Jesus was asked, very rarely would he just give you a point blank, straightforward answer. Uh, most of the time, Jesus would either answer a question with a question. Sometimes he would answer a question with a parable, which was kind of like a short story or an analogy. And oftentimes a parable would end with a question. And so what we said is we said, man, all this kind of points to the fact that Jesus really did ask a ton of questions. And what we said in the series is we said, we believe the reason that Jesus asked so many questions is not because he was seeking information. It's not that he was trying to gain information from people. Instead, we said what it was is that Jesus was seeking transformation. Uh, that Jesus, as many of us know, being a master teacher, understood the value of a great question. Uh, Jesus understood that there was nothing that has the power to cause a complete mental turnaround like that of a question. Jesus understood that questions kind of cause us to really kind of evaluate our preconceived notions and our preconceived understandings, and it can press against the boundaries of our thinking. And so Jesus asked a ton of questions. And so in this series, what we're doing then is we said each week, we're just going to look at a different penetrating question that Jesus asked. And our hope is that as we do that, that maybe for us, it would lead us to greater transformation. Uh, that is, we kind of look into that question and probe that question and ask ourselves that question and allow it to penetrate our hearts and penetrate our minds, that it might lead not to greater information, but to transformation, the transformation that God desires and he's designed for us. That's what we've been doing. And so if you missed uh, the past several weeks, by the way, uh, you can catch up on that if you want to. Each week, we looked at a different question. And so if you go to our website, kind of like Seth mentioned, uh, you can watch or you can listen to any of the previous messages. You can subscribe to our podcast all of that, of course, is for free, and we'd want you to do that. But today, as we continue in this series, we're going to look at yet another penetrating question that Jesus asks, and we're going to find this in John chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, if you would take them with me, we're going to turn together today. We're going to go to John chapter 6. Okay, so John 6, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you got them, and let's flip there. If you, uh, if you have a Bible app, go ahead and open it up and get to John chapter 6. If you did not bring a Bible with you today, or if you don't have one available to you, that's no problem. We have some Bibles that are in the chairs there in front of you or underneath you, and you could take those black Bibles that you have there. You could turn to page 756. That's where you're going to find John chapter 6, so you can go ahead and flip there and turn there and get there if you would. And uh, let me just also say that if you are a person that does not own a copy of the Bible, like if you just don't have your own copy, man, we think it's real important that you have one. And so you could just have one of ours, okay? Just take it, make it a gift from us to you. Um, happy April Fool's Day. I don't know. That's not how April Fool's works, but you can have a Bible. It's no joke. You really can. So you can, you can do that. Okay, so John chapter 6. And as you guys are turning to John chapter 6, um, let me just kind of, you know, give you, tell you a story real quick about something I read a while ago that I thought was very, very interesting and really fascinating. So um, Benjamin Franklin, I think all of us are probably familiar with Benjamin Franklin, founding father of our country, 
third president of the United States of America, Benjamin Franklin, back in 1804, he set out to, um, to create, why was someone laughing? Did I mess that up? Is he not the third president of the United States? No. Jefferson. That's right. Dang, I did this, I did this last service too. I said Franklin and I meant Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, who's the third president of the United States. Why do I get those guys confused in my mind? Anyway, so Jefferson, thank you for that. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States of America, not to be confused with Ben Franklin. <laughs> uh, back in 1804, he set out to create his own version of the Bible. And uh, in fact, you may have heard of this before. When, when I say create his own version of the Bible, I guess more specifically, uh, Thomas Jefferson went out to create his own version of the New Testament. So Jefferson was a man who was a self-proclaimed Christ follower. Uh, he was a man who was known to be devoted to the teachings of Jesus. And so he even uh, claimed that he would read the teachings of Jesus every day. He claimed that he would build his life off the teachings of Jesus. But the problem that Jefferson had was that, that there was some, being kind of a modern thinker, at least back in his time, there were some issues he had with the teachings of Jesus. And so specifically, he had a problem with some of the claims that Jesus made about himself. Uh, many of you guys know throughout the New Testament, Jesus made some very outrageous claims about who he was and about what he came to do. Jefferson had a hard time with some of those things. Uh, Jefferson had a hard time with some of the miracles of Jesus. Uh, being a modern thinker, he would read through some of the miraculous events and they would kind of create a crisis in his thinking and it was something that he was challenged with. It was hard for him to accept. And so all of this led to Thomas Jefferson in 1804 setting out to create his own version of the New Testament. Here's kind of how he did that. Uh, what he did was he took about six different New Testaments, six different Bibles, different translations. And he proceeded, historians tell us, to take a knife, most likely like a pen knife, and he would cut out the parts of the Jesus story that he liked, and he would paste them into kind of this journal that he had. And so he would sort of do this. And then the parts that he struggled with, the parts that he kind of d disagreed with or had a hard time with, he would strategically omit from his own version of the New Testament that he had created. Like I said, the parts that he omitted were mostly the miraculous events and the, and the supernatural claims that Jesus made about himself. And so after doing this for several years, what he ended up with by the time he was finally finished was, was kind of this big book of teaching. It was an edited version of Jesus, an edited version of the New Testament. And he called it the life in the morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's actually known today as the Jefferson Bible. You can get it on Amazon if you want to. You can find it. But basically, this became his Bible, and he would read it every day, and he would build his life off of it, and he would look at it for guidance, and he would seek after it, and those things. And the fascinating thing is you can actually see the Jefferson Bible. If you go down to the Smithsonian uh, down in D.C., you can actually see this thing. And they have fully restored it, and they have it on display. In fact, let me just show you, show you a picture of it. Uh, on the left-hand side, you can see here uh, that, that he, that's his, uh, his Bible. That's the actual, the actual real Bible that he had. They fully restored it. He bound it in red leather, very thick, durable red leather. And if you look on the inside, I don't know if you can tell by this picture, but there's brush strokes where you can see he brushed the paste onto the pages. And you can see that he cut different pieces out of different Bibles and just put them right there in his own version of the New Testament. The Smithsonian also has, I'll show you another picture real quick. They also have a couple of the source Bibles that he would have cut from. And so these are actually some of the Bibles that he used to create his own version of the New Testament. And so by the time he was finished, what he had was he had a fully edited, a fully comprehensible, at least to him, version of Jesus, a fully comprehensible version of the New Testament. Now, what's, what's interesting about all of this, and actually what's really ironic, is that one of the passages that Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> that Thomas Jefferson strategically omitted was the passage we're looking at today, John chapter 6. He strategically left this part out. And so what I want to, I, I say it's ironic and you'll see why here in just a second. And so what I want to do is I actually want to spend most of our time just looking at, at John chapter six, verses 60 on to the end of the chapter. But in order for me to do that, I know I have to first kind of give you some context. And so let me start by just surveying a little bit, John chapter six. And so I want to survey John chapter six. And like I said, I really want to zoom in. I want to spend bulk of our time looking at verse 60 on. So when you get to John chapter 6, what we find is that Jesus, by the time you get to John chapter 6, is at the height of his popularity. Okay, that's what we find by the time you get to John chapter 6. And so the Bible tells us that in the Gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus begins his ministry. He performs miracles. The Bible says he turns water into wine in John chapter 2. In John chapter 3, 4, and 5, 
Jesus is teaching intriguing things that people have never heard before. Uh, Jesus performs miracles. Uh, so we see Jesus heal people. That happens in John chapter four, John chapter five, we see that. And by the time we get to John chapter six, like I said, the Bible shows us that Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity, all right? And, and so there's a ton of people who are now following Jesus. And that's where we kind of open up. So let me just survey John chapter six. If you look at verse one, it says this. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick, okay? So the, uh, John chapter six open up, opens up and the Bible says that there is a great crowd of people who are following Jesus. Jesus is at the peak of his popularity and the Bible tells us why he's at the peak of his popularity. Notice what it says in verse two. It says a great crowd of people followed Jesus. Why? Because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. So the Bible says everyone was intrigued by Jesus. They saw that he could do things that not the average person could do. And so they were interested and they were intrigued. And so they began to follow him. And the Bible tells us that a great crowd of people began to follow him. How great was this crowd? Well, some of you might know, John's actually gonna go on to tell us that this crowd included about 5,000 men. And now back in Bible times, whenever you would count a crowd, for whatever reason, just kind of the way they did it back then, they would only count men. They would not count women and children. No offense if you're a woman or a child, but back in this culture, they just wouldn't do that. And so it's reasonable for us to assume that this great crowd may have numbered up to possibly 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people, including men, women, and children. So the Bible says Jesus is just, I mean, massive crowds of people are following him by the time we get to John chapter six. Now, some of you, if you're familiar with John chapter six, you might know what happens next. One of the most famous miracles in all the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus is teaching this massive crowd of people and he realizes that they don't have enough food to feed everyone and everyone is hungry and there's not sufficient food. And Jesus goes on to perform one of the most famous and one of the most amazing miracles in all of the New Testament. And the Bible says that Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and he miraculously multiplies them in such a way that he feeds the entire mass of people. Unbelievable miracle. And the Bible says that the people, when they see Jesus perform this miracle, as you can imagine, uh, they were thrilled. Uh, they were absolutely enthralled with what Jesus had just done. In fact, in verse 14, let me show you their response. It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, that is, after he performed this miracle of feeding this large crowd of 5,000 men, quite possibly 10, 15, 20,000 people, the Bible says that they begin to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. So in other words, they said, man, this Jesus is unlike any other who does this kind of, performs miracles. He can multiply fish and loaves. He can feed people. They said, surely this guy is from God. Surely there's something about him that is unique, that is special. Then watch this. Look what the Bible says. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into a mountain by himself. Now, this is fascinating. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but the Bible says the crowds were so enthralled with him they were so excited about the miracles that he was performing. They were so very impressed. The Bible says that they intended to make him king by force. They were gonna take him and they said, man, this guy's gotta be our king. This guy's got the best healthcare policy of anyone around. You know, he just heals you. He's got the best welfare system ever. He just multiplies fish and loaves. And he, he, so they, the Bible says they tried to make him king, but look, what's, this is really fascinating. The Bible says that Jesus, knowing this, withdrew to a mountain by himself is fascinating. In other words, the Bible says when Jesus, when Jesus realized that they were going to make him king by force, what he did was he hid, went away and he hid. He said, I'm getting out of here, which is interesting. It might strike some of us strange because for some of us might be thinking, well, we might be thinking to ourselves, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't that what Jesus would want? Isn't that what Jesus was always talking about, right? Wasn't Jesus always talking about establishing a kingdom on this earth? Wasn't Jesus always talking about establishing an eternal kingdom and that he was the, wasn't he always talking about that? Wouldn't he want this? But the Bible says, instead of allowing them to do that, that he went and hid, wouldn't Jesus want a broader public platform? Wouldn't he want a greater opportunity to share his message and to share the good news about God? And wouldn't he desire that? You would think that, but the Bible says when he knew that they were gonna make him king by force, he hid, he took off, he left. Why? Well, you guys may, might know how the rest of the story goes. The Bible says that the, the crowd went down, tracked Jesus down, and eventually they found him. And when they found him, in verse 26, Jesus tells us why it is that he hid. And here's what he says in verse 26. 
Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. So in other words, here Jesus explains to them why it was that he hid from them. He says, the reason I hid from you, and he actually says it right here, he says, it's because you're, you're, the reason I hid is because you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. In other words, here's what he says. The reason I hid when you tried to make me king is because you're coming to me for all the wrong reasons. You've misunderstood me. And, and the reason that you're coming after me is because I gave you bread. That's why. And, and I, I love what he says here. He says, you didn't come to me. You're not looking to me because you saw, and this is an interesting word, because you saw the signs. He says, you're not coming because you saw the signs. Now, like I said, that's a fascinating word. Think about it for a minute. What is a sign? We all know what a sign is, right? Driving up 71, you see a sign. It says Cleveland, 10 miles. What is that? Right? It is nothing, a sign is nothing more than something that directs you to a destination. That's all a sign is. A sign is not the destination. A sign is not the substance. A sign is something that merely directs you. It points you to a destination and it points you to a substance. And once you arrive at the destination, once you adhere or once you attain the substance, you no longer need the sign. You no longer need the sign. And here's what Jesus says. He says, you're coming to me not not because I am the substance, not because I am the destination. You are coming to me because, because you had bread. That's what you're after. He says, but you're not coming to me for me. That's not why you're here. And then Jesus goes on, and for the rest of John chapter 6, he goes on to make some of the most outrageous claims about himself in the entire New Testament. And I don't have time to get into all of them because, just for time's sake, but let me, just, let me just highlight a few of the claims that Jesus makes about himself from verse 27 down to verse 59 in John chapter 6. Here's just a few. Jesus says this to the people. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Outrageous claim. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever comes to me will never grow thirsty. He actually is going to go on to say this. He's going to say, if anyone wants part of me, he has to eat my flesh and he has to drink my blood. Crazy. Jesus says this. Here's another outrageous claim that he makes. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, I'm from heaven. I'm from God. And I've come not to do my own will, but to do the will of God who has sent me. Outrageous claim that Jesus makes about himself. Here's another one. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And when you start to read John chapter six, what you begin to understand is, man, Jesus starts saying some, just some outrageous things about himself. Now, let me just kind of summarize real quick. In those claims, many of the claims that Jesus makes are metaphorical. And, and what he means when he says, I am the bread of life, that anyone who comes to me will never hunger and will never thirst. What he's saying is this, is he's saying, I am exclusively the only one who can satisfy the appetite of the human soul exclusively. Everything else in this life will leave you hungry. Every other pursuit, every other pleasure, it will leave you hungry again. I am the only one who can satiate the appetite of the human soul. That's what he says about himself. When he says, I am from God, he's saying, I am of God and I am God's, God's exclusive solution to the forgiveness of sins. When he says, I'm going to give my, my body and I'm going to give my blood as, as a way so that the world might find life. What he's saying is, I am the Messiah who has come to atone for the sin of the world. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm of God, I am from God, and because of all of those things, I demand more allegiance than anything else in your life. And like I mentioned, you guys, these are outrageous claims that Jesus would have made about himself. And now I want to really focus in on verse 60 because I want you to notice the response of the people to these things that Jesus says. Look at verse 60. On hearing this, Bible says, on hearing what? On hearing these crazy things Jesus just said about himself. I'm the bread of life. I am from God. I am, I am gonna give my flesh and blood for the sins of the world. All, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And so the Bible says after Jesus takes some time to really explain who he is, that the reality of what Jesus is saying begins to set in. And all of a sudden, these people start to say, well, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
this is hard. This is difficult for us. And, and, and man, we were, Jesus, we were cool with, with the food stuff and we were cool with the miracles, but now all of a sudden you're starting to say things and this is a hard teaching. This is difficult for us to understand. I want you to notice too what they said here. They said, this is a hard teaching. I think this is important to mention the term here that's used hard teaching uh, back in the original Greek language, the sense of this term, I think that this is an important clarifying statement. The sense of this term is not, it's hard to understand. That's not what they meant. What they meant is, um, this is hard to swallow. That's what they meant. So the problem wasn't that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And they, they had a hard time with it. It was hard to swallow. They choked on what Jesus had to say when he said, they said, this is a hard teaching. And like our third president of the United States of America, they said, man, there are, there are certain parts of Jesus that we really liked, but this, 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 this is hard. This, I don't know if I can fully grasp that. This, I'm not sure I can take it. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 61, because in verse 61, we're going to see the question, the penetrating question that Jesus asked that I think is worth our consideration today. Verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, here's the question. Does this offend you? Does this offend you? Aware that Jesus' disciples were grumbling about this, about what? about the claims that he just made about himself, about the teaching that he just gave his people. Aware aware that they were grumbling, Jesus looked at them and he asked, does this offend you? Does my teaching offend you? Does the words that I just said about myself, do those offend you? Are you offended by what I just said? That's a penetrating question. That's a really powerful question. It's a fascinating question. You know, we, we talked about this. We said Jesus, Jesus asked questions not because he was seeking information. And you see that here because Jesus was already aware. He was aware that they were offended. He was aware that they were grumbling. And yet he looks at them and he asks this penetrating question. He says, does that offend you? Does what I say about myself offend you? Does my teaching about myself offend you? It's, it's a very fascinating question. It's also a really fascinating word. The word offend that's used here in the original language, it's actually pretty, pretty similar to the way that we would use the word offend in our culture today, uh, but there is a, it is slightly different. And so the word offend in the original Greek language can also be translated stumbling block. It's actually one way it's translated. And it's actually the same word that we get the English word scandal from. And so what does it mean to be offended according to the Bible? Here's what it means. It means to, to introduce something that seems scandalous to you scandalous to your preconceived notions, scandalous to, 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 your, to, to your preferences, scandalous to your prejudices, scandalous to, your, to whatever, it, just scandalous to the way that you, it's to stretch your thinking. It's outside of the bounds of what you believe and what you understand to be acceptable. And so Jesus says, did what I just say about myself, is that scandalous to you? Did what I just say, is that outside of the realm of what you're comfortable with? Does, is that, is that, does that seem scandalous to your preconceived notions, to the way that you current, to, to your worldview? Is that, does that seem scandalous to your preferences and to your prejudices? Does that seem scandalous? That's what he asks. Are you offended by what I said? And then watch what he does next, because this is, this is crazy. Watch what Jesus ne- does next. He asked them this question, knowing full well that they were offended. So here he's in front of this massive crowd. I mean, thousands of people. And many of them are offended by him. And Jesus says, are you offended by what I said? And he knows they are. And then he says this. Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? Now this is nuts. And this is, I don't know if you noticed, the reason this is so nuts to me is because here you have Jesus standing before a crowd that he knows is offended by the things that he's saying about himself. And Jesus, rather than toning it down, starts to turn it up. You notice this? So so do you notice what Jesus says here? Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, are you guys offended by that? I know you're offended by that. So he doesn't do this. He doesn't say, okay, guys, I I know you're offended. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to step on anyone's toes. And I know sometimes I can get a little extreme. And I know that you guys are, I know you you really like the miracles and you like, you know, the, 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 the healing and stuff like that, but you're not real comfortable with the flesh and blood stuff and the, and the bread of life stuff and the I'm from God stuff. And so I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to offend you. Let me tone it down. Let me tone it down. All right. Come back. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. You know what? Let me whip up a miracle real quick. 
right? So let me just, someone give me some fish and bread, and we'll make lunch. In fact, why don't you get some water? We'll make it an early happy hour, right? I'll turn it into wine. It'll be, it'll take the edge off. Everyone will be fine. I don't want to offend anyone. It's not what he does. Jesus says, does that offend you? My words offend you. My claims about myself offend you. He says, well, then what about this? He says, if my words offended you, then what if right now you saw me, son of man was a title he used for himself. What if you saw me ascend right now and go back to heaven where I come from? And my guess is these people who are offended must at this point been thinking to themselves, this guy's nuts. This guy's nuts. Do you guys ever have a conversation with someone and it seemed like everything was normal and then all of a sudden they said something and you were like, wait, what? Did you ever have, I was thinking about uh, the way these people must have felt and it reminded me of um, when I lived in Chicago, I used to take the L train to work every day, like many people did. And as you can imagine, uh, because so many people took the train to work, it was always packed in the mornings. And so almost every time I would take the train to work, I would be sitting next to a stranger, you know, and that was just kind of a normal thing. And so I remember this one, this one day I was taking the train into work and I was sitting next to this guy and didn't know him, total stranger. Seemed like a totally normal guy. So we, we struck up a conversation. You know, we have a long commute in. So we struck up a conversation and it seemed like a normal conversation. You know, we were, we were talking about kind of the normal things of life, kind of the, just the formalities, talk about weather, talk about, you know, uh, where are you originally from? How long have you been in the city? Those are like typical questions you ask when you're in the city. So we're on the train and we're talking. And I don't remember exactly how he got to this, but nonchalantly, somehow he wove into the conversation something about his time machine. And I was like, and I remember I was like, he was like, yeah, you know, there's this thing and that, and this is my time machine I got going on. And I was like, wait, I was like, wait a minute. And, and I laughed and he didn't. And I was like, I said, wait a minute. I was like, can you go back for a minute? I said, you said something about a time machine. He's like, oh yeah, I got a time machine. And I was like, well, a time, I was like, 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 like back to the future time machine. He's like, yeah, it's not a DeLorean. He's like, but you know, I go, he goes like, and I was like, what do you do with that? He's like, I go back and forth in time and I can go to different places. And as I talked to him and as we kind of kept, I, and I was confused, I, I suddenly dawned on him. I was like, oh, this guy's crazy. That's what it is. <laughs> He's crazy. And he was, he was crazy. He was completely convinced that he could travel back in time. And I thought to myself, I thought, dude, if you have a time machine, why would you be on the L train? Why would you do that? You know, and it occurred to me, and I'm guessing for these guys, they must have felt that way. They must have felt that way. They're like, oh, Jesus, yeah, man, his teaching is interesting, and he does some neat stuff, man, he fed people, and he, and, he, and he helps heal people. That's awesome. And Jesus is like, do you like that? They're like, yeah, that we really like that, Jesus. In fact, we want to make you our king. He says, is that right? He says, that's right. They're like, yeah, we love that. He says, okay, listen, here's the thing, though. I'm the bread of life. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want any part of me. And I am the only one who can exclusively satisfy the appetite of the human heart. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait, what did you just say? And then he says, yeah, I'm from God. I am the one who is sent from God. I am of God and I am here to take away the sins of the world. I've come not to do my will, but the will of my father. God is my father. And they're like, what? And he's like, yep, I am the bread of life. And then he says, does that offend you? And they're like, yeah. And then he's like, instead of toning it down, he turns it up. He turns it up. And these guys must have thought he was insane. And then he goes on. Watch what he says next. He even turns it up more. Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Look at this. The words I have spoken to you, I apologize for them. That's not what he says, right? He says, the words I have spoken to you, they're full of spirit and they're full of life. I can't take my words. They might offend you. I can't take them back. Why? Because they're full of spirit. Because they're full of life. He says this, yet there's some of you who, who do not believe. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And so like I said, rather than toning it down, Jesus turns it up. He says, are you offended? And clearly they were. And rather than backing it up, he instead turns it up, makes himself extremely clear, to which the crowd must have been even more offended. In fact, that's what we see in verse 66. Let me, let me show you the response of the people. From this time, many of his disciples turned back, and look at this, stopped following him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So a bunch of them said, man, you know what? <clears throat> I'm out. Jesus, I'm out. I mean, I was cool with the meal plan thing. That was awesome. It's cool with the healthcare system thing. That was great. 
This whole talk about being the bread of life, this whole talk about being from God, this whole talk about being God, I'm out. I'm out. And the Bible says that many of them stopped following Jesus and they no longer followed him. And what I think is so interesting about this verse, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but do you notice who it was who was no longer following him? Do you notice? It's his disciples. It's his disciples. It was people who at one point or another made a claim that they followed Jesus. And I think, you guys, that this verse, that this verse is actually very, very clarifying. It's very intriguing. And the reason is because I think what it does is it introduces us to a third category of disciple. And here's what I mean by that. I think the Bible teaches us that there are three types of disciples in this world, three types of disciples. And I think the first two are very obvious, and I think the third one is not obvious. And let me explain what I mean. The first two are real obvious, two different types of disciples. You have non-disciples and you have true disciples. Pretty self-explanatory, right? What is a non-disciple? A non-disciple is someone that says, I'm not a disciple. I don't follow Jesus. I don't claim to follow Jesus. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't believe the things that Jesus said about himself. That's a non-disciple. Pretty straightforward. You have true disciples. True disciples say, I do follow Jesus. I do believe the things that he says about himself. I, I, do, I have committed my life to the things that he said is true. You have non-disciples and you have true disciples. And I believe, by the way, in a room this size, there's probably both present here. And if you're a per- so maybe you're a person that says, I'm not a disciple. I don't know what I think about Jesus. I'm investigating all of that, right? Maybe you're a person that says, I am a disciple. I do follow Jesus, and that's true about me. Now, here's the thing. These two, I think, are the most obvious, but I think it's important that even though they might seem opposite of each other, and to some extent they are, they actually do have one very important characteristic in common, and that's this. Generally speaking, both categories, non-disciples and true disciples, have both most likely truly weighed the claims of Jesus. So here's what I mean. Non-disciple says, yeah, I know what Jesus says. I've read his stuff before, and yeah, he's got some good moral teaching, and yeah, he's got some really good life lessons, but let's face it. The dude made some pretty outrageous claims about himself, and so he says that he's God. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He claims exclusivity as the only way who can, who can connect to God. The Bible says about Jesus that the universe was made through him, by him, for him, and in him, that he was before all things. And a, non, and a non-disciple says, yeah, I know what Jesus says about himself, and I think he's crazy. I think that those claims are, are, are outlandish. And so because of that, I don't follow Jesus. I don't give anyone that kind of authority in my life. A true disciple says the same thing, but they come to a different conclusion. They say, yeah, I know what Jesus teaches. I know what he says about himself. And even though it doesn't always make sense to me, and even though I st- I, sometimes it's confusing to me, I believe that he is who he says he is. And so I believe that he's the Lord. I believe that, he's, that he is God. I believe that he is the only exclusive way to gain connection with the Father. I believe that. That's a true disciple. But what this passage introduces us to is actually a third category. And I think that's this. It's a false disciple. You have true disciples, you have non-disciples, you have false disciples. Now, what's a false disciple? Here's a false disciple. A false disciple is someone that makes a claim. I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus. I am a Christ follower. And yet, maybe they have not fully weighed out the claims of Christ. And so because of that, a false disciple oftentimes worships a version of Jesus that they prefer, a Thomas Jefferson version of Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I, I follow Jesus. I like, I like what he says in his, you know, the, the whole, you know, Beatitudes. That's great. I like what he says about love and forgiveness. Some of the other stuff he says, I'm not really sure about that, but I, you know, I, I like this stuff about Jesus. And so, yeah, I follow Jesus. It's a false disciple. A false disciple might even be someone who goes to church. There might be a person who comes and, 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 and has an intellectual ascension. They might come in, they might have a base of morality that's based around the teachings of Jesus but they maybe haven't fully grappled with the claims of Christ. And I would say this, I would say that this version of discipleship is by far the most subtle and by far the most dangerous, by far. And the easiest of them all to adhere to, the easiest. And I understand why, I get it. I mean, I can get why that is easy. In fact, let me, let me just, uh, if you'd let me be just real honest for a second, and not that I was being dishonest a moment ago, but let me be transparent for a moment. Um, as, as a pastor and as a, a teacher of the Bible, can I just tell you, this is just a confession. This is true confession for me. There are times when I am preparing to, to deliver a message here on the weekends. So I'll be preparing 
And as I'm preparing, I will be studying a topic or I'll be studying a passage of scripture and I will find myself getting extremely excited about coming and sharing it. I'm like, man, I can't wait to share this. And here, here's the honest truth. Sometimes the reason I feel that way is because I know you're gonna like it. There's times I'm like, oh, they're gonna love this. This is gonna inspire. This is gonna motivate. Maybe someone might even cry. Like, I don't know why. Why is that the, like, like I cried today. Yeah, you know, like, why is that the, and, and, but sometimes I think that, and here's why. Because there are certain topics in the Bible, there are certain things that Jesus teaches that are, are really appealing to our culture. There are. And so, for example, whenever we can talk about the forgiveness of God, whenever we can talk about the grace of God, the love of God, whenever we get a chance to talk about the power and the majesty of God, and those, those, those things, they soar. They soar. And I know that if I can get up and present that, that you're going to get excited and you're going to get motivated and it's awesome. And listen, hear me. I am not at all for a minute saying that we should not be jacked up and excited about the grace of God. We should, for crying out loud, it is the centerpiece of the gospel. We should get amped up about forgiveness and about the majesty and power. So don't hear me wrong. But here's, the, here's kind of the dark side of it. The dark side is there are other times that I am preparing. And I'm, I'm in a passage of scripture or there's a topic that we're addressing and I dread coming up here. I dread it. And the reason, if I'm being honest with you, is because I know it's going to offend you. I know it's something that is not culturally advantageous. I know it is something that possibly seems regressive or seems archaic. I know it is something that goes against everything that our culture teaches. And to be honest with you, I know it's going to offend you. And sometimes, this is being real honest, sometimes I don't want to say it because it offends me. Because it, it, it's, it's scandalous to my preferences. It's scandalous to my preconceived notions. It goes against what I tend to think. And sometimes I'm like, man, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to teach this part. It's not because I don't understand it. It's because I do understand it. And it rubs up against the way that we live and it rubs up against our preferences and it rubs up against our prejudice and it rubs up against those things and I don't want to teach it. And so, for example, anytime there's a, a topic that has to do with Jesus' teaching on generosity, on our stuff and on our money, man, I'm always like, oh, I don't want to teach this because I know I'm going to get emails. I know people are going to be like, let's only talk about church and money. I'm, sad, I'm not mocking you if you say that. It sounds that way. <laughs> Because I think the same. I think the same thing. Anytime we talk about forgiveness, not God's forgiveness to us, but our forgiveness of others. Anytime we talk about making disciples, the great commission that Jesus gave to those who follow Him, I know it's going to rub up against people. I know it's going to be offensive to us. It's going to push against our lifestyle, and it's going to push against our preferences. It's going to push against what we're comfortable with. But here's what I know, and here's what you know as well. And I, I think if, if we have any intellectual integrity, all of us know this. Listen. We cannot be Thomas Jefferson. We can't. I can't and you can't. I can't cut and paste the parts of Jesus I like and the parts of Jesus I don't like and just make him and who I want him to be. Because you know this, anytime we edit Jesus, anytime we add to him or we subtract to him, we have lost him. And man, you're no longer dealing with Jesus. You're dealing with a fabricated Jesus. You're dealing with a version of Jesus, a self-made version of Jesus, a, a Thomas Jefferson Jesus. And we can't do that. We can't do it. And this, by the way, man, this is why I love Peter's response in this passage. I love Peter. Some of you might remember how the story goes. The Bible says that Jesus offends everybody. Everyone leaves for the most part. Massive crowd. All of them are gone. And we don't know how many remained, but the Bible says at least the 12 did, at least 12. So maybe quite possibly a crowd of 10, 15,000 is now down to 12. And Jesus turns to him, another question. Jesus turns to his 12 and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? So Jesus turns to his, to, to his people. He doesn't chase after those who left. He turns to his 12 and he says, do you guys want to go too? You guys want to leave? And then Peter, man, Peter's response. Peter is the guy who's always putting his foot in his mouth. You guys remember that? And now he's, but this, this time, man, he's got it. He's got it. Look at his response. This is so awesome. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where else are we going? To whom, else are we, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I love Peter's response. And here, let me tell you why I love Peter's response. I love Peter's response, not just because of what he says, because it's awesome. But I also love it because of what he doesn't say. Do you notice what he doesn't say? 
Jesus doesn't, he looks at this, the 12 and he says, do you guys want to go too? Did what I say offend you? And Peter doesn't say, Jesus, we're not going anywhere because you never offend us. Everything you say, we agree with all the time, Jesus. Everything, we're on board with 100%. You never say anything that seems scandalous to us, ever. Everything you teach and everything you say is in 100% alignment with our preferences, 100% alignment with our preconceived ideas and thoughts, 100% in line with our understanding of God and theology. That is not what he says. Why? Because that's not true. If you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus is constantly offending the disciples. He is always challenging their thinking. He is always stretching the bounds of, of, of what they're used to, of their preferences, of their preconceived notions. He's constantly doing this. He's constantly looking at them and, 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 and confronting them on wrong ways of thinking. So notice what Peter says. Peter doesn't say, Jesus, you never offend us ever. He says this. He says, no, we don't have anywhere else to go. There is nowhere else to go, Jesus, because we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, here's what Peter says. He says, look, Jesus, here's the thing. I don't always understand you. In fact, most of the time I don't. Like, for example, the fact that there was 20,000 people here and you chased them all away, don't get that. doesn't make any sense to me. And so, Jesus, I don't always understand you. The things you do, the stuff you say, the stuff you ask, sometimes it makes no sense to me. It seems weird to me. But here's the thing. I've seen too much. I know too much. I've experienced too much, and I believe that you are the one who is sent from God. And so here's the thing, Jesus. If I'm ever offended by you, I think what that means is that you don't need to change I do. I don't edit you. You need to edit me. That's what that means. I don't edit you. You edit me. You change me. If I'm, the, if, if I'm the one who's offended, then listen, Jesus, because you are God and because you are the Holy One who comes from God, you have the exclusive right to offend me at any point. And if you do, it means that I change, not that you change. And I think, I think that Peter's response here and the crowd's response reveals two very important things to us. And I think this is for us in this room today. And here they are. Number one, I think it reveals this. It's not always a bad thing to be offended, especially by Jesus. It is not always a bad thing to be offended. Listen, you guys know this as well as I do. We live in a culture today where the number one cardinal sin that you can commit against another person is, by, is to offend them. And so that's what we're taught. We're, we're taught, man, you can, you can say what you want. You can believe what you want. You can have your opinions about whatever you want. You can do whatever, just as long as you don't offend anybody. Don't offend anybody. Don't step on anyone's toes. And, and you know, don't hurt anyone's feelings. And that's, that's the cardinal sin. That's the number one capital offense in our culture is to offend somebody. But I think what this passage is telling us is, listen, it's not always a bad thing to be offended. Now, please hear me on this. What I'm not saying is that that means that you should go out and purposely offend people. Like, don't go be a Jesus jerk. That's not what I'm saying. Like, I offended you. Well, Tony told me I should, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, if what it means to be offended is it means that, 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 that you are challenging my thinking, that you're pressing against my preconceived notions, that my preferences and my prejudices are being challenged, well, then I think that in some ways it's actually a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. In fact, I, I might even go as far to say this. I might go as far to say that if you read through the Gospels and you read through the teaching of Jesus and you are never offended, if the teachings of Jesus never challenge your lifestyle, if it never challenges your preferences, if it never challenges your prejudices, if it never challenges your political views, if Jesus always agrees with you all the time, I think it's actually a bad sign. I think it's a sign you might not be dealing with the real Jesus. Because here's what I know. We've talked about this before. I think it's worth mentioning again. Here's what I know. If you have a friend who never challenges you, who never disagrees with you, who never confuses you, and who never offends you, right, that is a surefire sign that you have an imaginary friend. <laughs> True or false? True, right? If I have a friend and they never challenge me, right, never disagree, I, I am dealing with a concoction of my own imagination, this is not the true Jesus. This is not the real, this is not a real friend. If you have a spouse, right? If you have a wife that never challenges you, if you have a wife that never disagrees with you, if you have a wife, men, that never confuses you, right? If you have a wife or a husband that never offends you, you don't have a real wife. You have a Stepford wife. Did you guys ever see that movie before? Guys make their wives. They just, it's like a robot, right? You don't, you're not dealing with a real person, it's, it's, a, it's a construct of your imagination. And here's what I would say. If you have a Jesus 
who never challenges you. No, Jesus always validates my opinion on everything. My lifestyle is always justified. Jesus is always on my side. My political view, I claim Jesus on my political side, right? If he never disagrees with me, if, if, if there's never a crisis of the way I think things ought to be and the way that Jesus says things ought to be, if he never confuses me, if there's never times I'm like, man, what do you mean by that? If that never happens, if, if he never offends you, if he never, if he never presses up against your prejudices and your, 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 your preferences and your preconceived, if that never happens, you have an imaginary Jesus, not the real one, not the real Jesus, because real people challenge and they disagree and they confuse and they offend. And so here's the thing. I think that if you find yourself offended by Jesus, it's not a bad thing. I actually think it's a verifying thing. I think it's validating that you're probably dealing with the real thing. And if you have a God that makes sense to you, what kind of God is that? What kind of God is that? I think this reveals something else to us. It reveals that it's not always a bad thing to be offended. I think the other thing it reveals to us is this, is that offense is actually an opportunity to reveal true discipleship. See, we, we, we view offense as a negative thing all the time. Man, don't offend me. I don't want to be offended. And, and if Jesus offends me, uh-oh, uh-oh. I don't want to be offended. It's a bad thing. But I think what this passage tells us is, no, it's not always a bad thing to be offended. In fact, offense might even be an opportunity. It might even be an opportunity to reveal to you who it is that you're really following. True discipleship, right? Because look, if, if, if the Jesus that I follow um, is one that I always agree with, if the times I follow Jesus is whenever it's advantageous for me, so yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus and it, when it makes sense and, 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 and when it benefits me and when it, but the times that I'm confused or there's things that Jesus says or there's stuff and I don't know about that part and that's it. I think that it's in those times of offense that it really truly reveals to us who it is that we're following. True discipleship is revealed in times of offense. You see this in John chapter six, don't you? You have these massive crowds of people and Jesus, upon offending them, rather than backing up on his offense, he turns up the heat because I think one of the most loving things that Jesus can do sometimes is he can offend us because he's trying to explain, he's trying to, he's trying to help us understand who it is that we're really dealing with. And so, Jesus questions offense. Does this offend you? Does my teaching offend you? Do my claims about me offend you? Do you always agree with me? D d does everything I say always line up with your preferences and with your opinions and those type of things? He calls into question offense. And I think what this passage teaches us is it's not always a bad thing to be offended. Not always a bad thing. And offense is oftentimes an opportunity to reveal true discipleship. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they do, I just want to leave you with kind of one thought, one question to process through. And, uh, and as we worship and as we sing, I would encourage you to pray and to dialogue with God, to interact with him. And, and here's the question I kind of want us to process through together. And that's really this. It's, it's this. What do you do? What do you do when you're offended by Jesus? What do you do when you're offended by him? You notice the question, by the way, is not what do you do if you're offended by Jesus? Because if you're really reading through the Gospels and you're really reading the teaching of Jesus, he will offend you. I mean, his, his teaching is going to press up against your preferences and your prejudices and your preconceived notions. It's just going to happen. It's going to. He's going to challenge your lifestyle. He's going to challenge your politics. He's going to challenge your parenting. He's going to challenge all of it. And so the question isn't if he offends you, how do you respond when he does? What do you do in those times? Do you, like Thomas Jefferson uh, strategically decide to just omit the parts you don't like, focus and key on the parts that you do? Is that what you do? Do you, in the face of that, do you do like many of the disciples here and do you go home? You say, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. I'll interact with Jesus as a teacher. I'll interact with Jesus as a moral guide. I'll interact with Jesus as, you know, kind of a good you know, religious guru, but I'm not interacting with him as God. I'm not interacting with him as the savior of the world. I'm not interacting with him as the, as the bread of life. I'm not interacting with that way. Do you choose to go home like many disciples did? Or, or is it an opportunity for you to lean in? Is it an opportunity for you like, like Peter to say, look, Jesus, here's the thing. I don't always get you. I don't always understand you. And some of the things that you say and you do, it challenges me so much. But where else am I gonna go? 
because I believe you're it. I believe that you're him. I believe you're the Messiah. And if that's the case, that means that when I'm offended, it's an opportunity for me. To, to, it reveals true discipleship that I don't need to edit you. You need to edit me. And, and to invite him to do that, which you process through that. And here's the thing. If you're a person that's investigating Jesus, if you're a person that would say, I'm not a disciple of Jesus, I'm, I'm still trying to figure all that out. Let, let me just, I just want to say this. We say this all the time. I think it's worth saying again, that if you are a person that's investigating Jesus, we count it a privilege that you would let us be part of your investigation. You could do anything you want with your Sunday morning and you're here. And we appreciate that. We really do to let us speak into that. But if you are a person investigating Jesus, I would give you this one kind of challenge sort of encouragement. And that would be this. As you're investigating Jesus, when you find yourself offended by him, because you will be, okay? Here's my encouragement and here's my challenge. Don't use that as an excuse to walk away, but view it as an opportunity to lean in because I think it might be an indication that you're dealing with the real thing that you're not just dealing with the construct of someone's imagination. You're not just dealing with, 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 with the product of some man-made invention. You're dealing with the real Jesus, and I think you're on to something. And so keep going. I'd encourage you that way. So take this time. Think, process, and pray. Interact with your Father. And talk to him about this. Man, what offends me about Jesus? Why does it offend me? Kind of search your heart on these things. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your words to us today. I'm, I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you, uh, your words sometimes are hard words. I'm actually thankful for it because I think it, re- it shows us we're dealing with something real. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not, you weren't afraid to offend. And I, I don't think, you, you never wanted to unnecessarily offend, but Jesus, the truth is that, that the message that you came to give is an offensive message. The claims that you made about yourself are outrageous. They are. They are. And either they're true or they're not, and there really is no in-between. There's no middle ground there. Either you really are the Lord and you really are God, or you're crazy. There's just no other option. There really isn't. And so I pray that you would uh, reveal yourself to us, Jesus. Maybe for some of us for the first time in this moment. Because, God, here's the thing. I mean, I could just speak for myself. I don't want to worship a Jesus that I have created. I don't want to do that because I, I know that a man-made God is only as powerful as the man who made him and I'm not very powerful and I need a God who's real. And so Jesus, I pray that we would come to you today, not to some fabrication of you, not to some edited version of you, not to some Jefferson version of you, but the real you, that we come to you and let you be you. And I pray, Jesus, that for those of us who follow you, that we, would, that we would resist the temptation to edit you and allow you to edit us. Change us, God. Because if you are who you say you are, then man, you have all the right in the world to offend us. You have exclusive rights to offend our preferences, to offend our prejudices, to offend our preconceived notions, to, 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 to go against our lives. You, you can do that because you're God. And so Jesus, I pray that even in these moments as we take some time to process through this, I ask you that you would speak to our hearts Reveal yourself to us. And for some of us, God, I pray we'd be able just to reaffirm our faith in you, our trust in you, our desires in you. I just want to ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.